from the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we're going to be coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about this election, the campaign, what might happen, what does happen, and we're going to keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week, my guest is Claire Jackson, the historian and television presenter whose widely acclaimed television series, broadcast in the run-up to the Scottish independence referendum last year, told the story of the Stuarts, the dynasty that united England and Scotland in the 17th century. The 2014 referendum saw Scots voting to stay part of the union by a margin of 55 to 45%, and the highest voter turnout in the UK for over 60 years at 85%. Claire Jackson. I think for any of us who weren't living in Scotland last year, we were just green with envy at the amount of political engagement, steroid sort of injection for democracy. Claire and I will discuss how history was harnessed during the campaign and what institutions, if any, remain that can still unite people on both sides of the border in the years ahead. Often what just holds these countries together is simply the monarchy. And that was, again, actually another theme in the referendum campaign, that neither side were proposing to dispense with the monarchy. Stay tuned. Before that, this week's political events. Anyone who thought that the Scottish referendum had put to bed the question of Scottish national identity and independence has discovered that those issues are more alive and for some people more threatening than ever in this election campaign. We went out onto the streets of Cambridge, which as you'll hear has got a very diverse local population, to ask people whether they thought that the Scottish referendum had actually settled the question. Of course it has, because there's been a majority vote against independence, so why should, why should there even be a recount to it? I think it was just the start, and it would not surprise me, in the next five years there will be another referendum, and this time there will be Scottish independence. We are a united kingdom, we are a family, I really would like it to stay together, because I think we are stronger together than divided. I really hope it stays together, um, and I think it will. The Scots have had their chance and they've probably missed it if they wanted to go independent. I voted yes for independence. I thought it was a a more progressive vision of the country that Scotland could be. I think the UK still thinks of itself as one of the policemen of the world, and I think for a lot of Scots there is very little appetite to be that. No, it didn't settle it. It won't go to bed yet. It'll come up again soon. They'll rattle around about it till they get it. Over the past seven days, the leaders of the two main parties have been trading blows about the role that a third party, the Scottish Nationalist Party, might play in Westminster after this election. Ed Miliband has been arguing that a vote for the SNP is handing the keys to Downing Street to David Cameron because it robs Labour of its necessary support in Scotland. David Cameron has countered that Labour are already looking to the SNP to prop them up in government, and he's called on Ed Miliband to rule out a coalition with a party that Cameron says wants to break up Britain. I'm joined by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brooke on political theory, to discuss this argument. Chris, who do you think has been having the better of it so far? In the contest between Cameron and Miliband, I think the Scottish nationalists are playing both of them like a whistle. But on this confrontation, in a sense, Cameron doesn't have anything to lose. The Scottish nationalists are taking seats off the Labour Party, the Conservatives, because they only have one, possibly two seats, I think only one in Scotland. They've all been bystanders to Scottish politics for a long time. But this obviously creates a very difficult position for Mr Miliband. And 
it's awkward because I don't think he has any idea how to respond to it. The Labour Party electoral strategy over the last five years has been built on winning seats from the Conservatives in Conservative Labour marginals. A lot of them are strung out along a line that goes between London and Lancashire or thereabouts. And to respond to the crisis in Scotland... Miliband would have to abandon that plan and draw up a completely new one, but he has no idea what it would actually take to bring voters back into the Labour fold. In uh, Scotland. So Cameron is winning this one, but because he doesn't have to do anything at all. This, okay. this is a crisis for the Labour Party. So Finbar Cameron is winning this one by default. He just has to stand there and the other guy will fall down. There is a moment where it's about just standing up and breathing. But Miliband has some easy outs, possibly, to say, well, OK, make a pact that you won't enter into any agreement with UKIP or any other party that says we're immediately coming out of Europe. Because on the other side, that's the same thing. It's a ridiculous thing to say that you can't have a pact with somebody who has taken a position and that it's unpatriotic. This characterization of it as being we're British and you're not is very, very dangerous to me. And I think Miliband does have a stronger line to come back on that he hasn't come back on yet. Although, of course, the prospects of UKIP holding the balance of power are much, much more remote than the SNP holding the balance of power. Absolutely. But if you're talking about the argument, the UKIP have said we're out of Europe. That's a fault line for the Conservatives. Go attack them on their fault line. Helen? I think I disagree with um, Finbar on this because I don't think that the possibility of Britain leaving the European Union is the same thing as the possibility of the UK state breaking up because Scotland wants to become an independent nation state. At the moment, the territorial unit in British politics is the British state. Either it stays as it is or it divides in two. At the same time, there is the possibility of Britain leaving this larger political unit of which it is a part, but there seem to me to be reasonable arguments on both sides about that. It doesn't actually change the nature of decision-making about British politics itself if Britain is outside the European Union. I think the stronger argument for Miliband to play, taking up Finbar's point but taking it in a different direction, is to say rule out a pact with the Ulster Unionists, sorry, the Democratic Unionists, given that there aren't any Ulster Unionists any longer, in the sense that this would be putting decision-making in Westminster at the mercy of what looks like from... English, Scottish and Welsh politics, some pretty provincial things, pretty parochial things. If you go back to the the major government, at times it was being propped up by then the Ulster Unionists and wanting concessions about things like electricity pricing in Belfast. And I don't think we really want British politics to be at the mercy of that. So this is one of the things that comes up in the conversation with Claire Jackson, because Scotland has so dominated this election that in a way we tended to forget about the other parts of the Union and not just Wales but Ireland which did dominate British politics for a generation or more and we've forgotten the ways in which Northern Ireland could be the decisive factor in the outcome of this election if it's as tight as people think. Finbar, do you, do you think that's something think, that we've forgotten about? I think it's absolutely true. We, for good reasons, got caught up with the Scottish referendum because it showed us how good a referendum and how good democracy can be. Incredibly high turnout, people engaging with an issue that they understood mattered to them. But that's overshadowed the other regions of the UK and put into sharp relief the idea that this is a combination of quite a number of moving parts. It's not just England and now this other question. There are many other regions which have been completely subjugated to the conversation. Chris, do you think, to put the question in its most acute form, that a conservative, democratic, unionist coalition government could govern this country after the next election for five years? Yes. 
I, no, I disagree. I disagree quite strongly because in a, in a political situation in which territorial politics has come to the fore, I think that government would have very little legitimacy very quickly. So what do you think would then happen? That any attempt to create that coalition would founder on the resistance of the other parties or that the two parties in the coalition would themselves fall out? I think if Cameron were wise, he wouldn't go down that road in the first place. I think it would do lasting damage to the Conservative Party for him to do so. I think that if he did go down the road and very quickly the coalition would run into some political difficulty that would result in its end and we'd be back having another general election. Thanks to Helen, Finbar and Chris. We'll be hearing more from them later in the show. Before that, I spoke to Claire Jackson about the long and complex history of the relationship between the constituent parts of the United Kingdom and how that history continues to inform the present. We started by talking about how she approached the delicate task of telling that history at a time of rising passions surrounding Scottish independence. How conscious was she as a public historian about the ways in which history can be used and abused by politicians? I think we were all aware of it. I mean, the BBC were very clear that they wanted to make a series that focused on the Stuarts very much as monarchs of three independent countries, England, Scotland and Ireland, uh, not just because of a perceived saturation with the Tudors, but actually to look at that multiple monarchy inheritance and to really sort of argue that the 17th century was the period in which modern understandings of Great Britain evolved. And then you as you told that story, knew that you had to be careful what you said, because this history is still very much alive in contemporary politics. Did you have to watch what you said? Did, did your history find itself being shaped by your consciousness of the ways that this story gets used today? Well, I think all historians are careful about what they say. I hope, I hope we always are. So I think we were careful about the way in which we were talking about history. But we were one of the themes of the series was history is actually also the stories that we tell ourselves. So one of the ways we looked at the civil wars, for example, in the 1640s, was both in terms of the way in which we can package it in terms of heritage as a nice day out watching a civil war reenactment between parliamentarians and roundheads, but then to think about it much more savagely almost as sort of a war of ethnic cleansing in Ireland and one of the most moving bits I think of talking about the civil wars was when I interviewed Fergal Keane who was talking very evocatively about the parallels he'd been struck by when he'd been in modern day Rwanda or the former Yugoslavia and confronted notions of genocide and ethnic cleansing and the ways in which communities that had lived together for generations suddenly within the context of a civil war you know former neighbours turn in on themselves and he drew exact parallels between what had happened in Ireland in the 1640s and another theme of this series was very much the politics of memory so we looked a lot at murals of the 17th century in Belfast, which are there, whether they're of Oliver Cromwell or King Billy, um, and also things like the Apprentice Boys Parade that each year celebrates or commemorates or whatever, uh, depending which side you're on, the Siege of Derry in 1689. And the referendum campaign itself, it was, by contemporary political standards, pretty heated. It wasn't violent in any sense, I don't think, unless you count what happened on Twitter as a kind of violence, but it was a very passionate debate, and history played a role in it. But it wasn't passionate in the way that you're describing. N nothing in the referendum campaign suggested a country on the brink of any kind of civil breakdown. Do you think that the way that history is used by contemporary politicians misses just how big a gulf there is between the kinds of conflicts you're describing and the democratic arguments that were being played out last year? Yeah, I mean, I think for any of us who weren't living in Scotland last year, we were just green with envy at the amount of political engagement. You know, Ian McWhirter called it a steroid sort of injection for democracy. And I think history is important and the ways in which history keeps alive, whether they're uncomfortable truths or contingent truths or all that sort of thing. But I think it would be 
crude and a disservice to the sophistication of the debate in Scotland last year to say that history was being used. So, what, But what are some of the uncomfortable truths that you think the sort of history that you're interested in brings to bear on contemporary arguments about the union? What are the things that you think history lets people recognise that they might otherwise miss? Well, I think history is a very good barometer. What we study is a very good barometer of contemporary anxieties. It's not an exact answer to your question. But, you know, in the 19th century, for example, the Scots were very interested in this sort of cult of Wallace and independence. And in a way, that wasn't used negatively against the Union. It was to reassure Scots that the Union had been achieved as two equal sovereign states, and this had never been a war of conquest. Obviously, the dynamics are very, very different. Uh, and Ireland's relationship with England has been very different, and the types of political nationalism that evolved in Ireland as a result of that history were different. So the fact that it was very much a Three Kingdoms series it didn't make explicit parallels because they weren't relevant at that time between Scotland's experiences and Ireland's, but, but they're there. And as you say that, it actually strikes me because... Your series, clearly, the context for it is the current obsession of British politics, which is the relationship between Scotland and England, which actually is a relatively recent phenomenon. Over the last 30 years, the relationship between England, or the United Kingdom, and Ireland has been the central relationship. And one of the striking things about this election is the extent to which that has fallen away. We're so preoccupied with what might happen in Scotland, where hardly anyone is talking about Ireland anymore. I'm very reassured that you think England is obsessed by it and preoccupied. I mean, I think one of the other themes of um, the series was the extent to which England has actually been very unreflective often about its relationships with um, being part of a multiple monarchy or its relationship with Scotland, unless there were particular contingent circumstances, as occurred in the beginning of the 18th century, where English interests are suddenly threatened by the prospect of, in that case, Scotland um, electing a different monarchy post-1689 and going for a French-sponsored Jacobite monarchy instead. That was enough to focus English minds at the beginning of the 18th century uh, and bring the English to the negotiating table. But my impression generally is that the English are remarkably unaware. And that was certainly my impression until very embarrassingly late in the day, I would have said last year, that the English media at any rate suddenly woke up in the late summer and realised that this was you know, potentially quite a momentous referendum that was taking place north of the border. Um, I mean, you could say the same was true of the English political class. The politicians who allowed this referendum to happen seemed to wake up relatively late in the day to what it was that they'd unleashed. And there was clearly a certain amount of panic right at the end. And I think English attitudes can be quite interesting. I mean, there was a sort of almost knee-jerk, quite emotional reaction very late, um, not talking about political classes here, but almost a sort of popular perception of, well, what have we done wrong? You know, what, what, what's their problem? Why don't they like us? Exactly. And uh, I mean, my sense is, you know, I'm not voting in Scotland, I'm not living there, but my sense is it, it, it's, not, it's not about that. It's actually more about the future. It's about Scott saying... It's nothing to do with the way we've been treated historically, but we're actually now thinking forward. We're thinking, you know, what is the best way that we can organise our society? And is that based on Scotland becoming an independent country or remaining part of the United Kingdom? So in a way, is it then a misrepresentation on my part? So my sense of it from south of the border is that these historical narratives have played a very important part in the Scottish independence arguments. But actually, maybe that's, that's a misunderstanding on my part, that actually that's a cliche that's being perpetuated by our south of the border that the Scots are obsessed with the history of their relations with England and that they're not. I would think so because I think if you were obsessed with your relations with England that would produce a particular type of political nationalism that really hasn't characterised Scottish identity you know in cultural nationalism has always been very strong in Scotland that's coexisted alongside legal nationalism religious nationalism and, and it's really only very recently that political nationalism has 
you know, taken a, a more mainstream role. But it's very interesting the numbers of people who very happily admitted or um, indicated that they'd voted yes um, in the referendum, but would still not necessarily define themselves as a nationalist. And conversely, the number of people who supported the Better Together campaign and voted no, who still would not necessarily now describe themselves as a unionist. So I think always assuming that unionism and nationalism are binary opposites in a Scottish context is perhaps complicated for different audiences to get their heads around, but actually crucial to understanding where Scotland is at the moment. And something else I was struck by in the campaign, which is that Scottish nationalism also has a strong internationalist streak to it. And there, the echoes are often of the 18th century. So the Scottish Enlightenment did play a part, I think, in the campaign. I mean, heard Alex Salmond talking about it very much in the context of universities and being open to the world and so on, that Scotland is drawing on an 18th century heritage. Your series was primarily about the 17th century heritage. This is a totally unfair question. But is the 17th century or the 18th century the one that you think shapes the way that these arguments are going? Mm, that is quite a difficult question. And it's, that might be an unfair binary. I say, because well, I was going to say it's predicated on the notion that history is driving these debates. And, and that also you, that you and, can divide it into centuries. Exactly. Which. And that you could then look at the 19th century and say, well, that's all to do with imperial confidence and a sort of notion of patriotism that was quite easy for Scots to subscribe to. And you could see that a lot in the commemorations, say, of the outbreak of World War One last year. I mean, that was a patriotism and a war that the Scots recognised as part of their British identity. But much more divisive were recent wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that most Scots felt were not wars that had been gone to in, in their name. So those older ties of sort of supranational um, identity were much weaker. So do you feel that the European background to these arguments is something, again, that we tend to neglect on the English side. So the preoccupation that this is England either versus Scotland or and Scotland. Wales gets left out a bit. Ireland gets left out a lot. But Scots, I think more than the English, are particularly aware of their relations with the wider European continent. Very much so. And I mean, again, you could say it's either one of the ironies or one of the interesting strengths of a lot of the arguments on the yes side last year that this is only one union we're talking about. This is just the union with England and Scotland. It's not talking about EU membership. It's not talking about native membership. Now, there may be complexities associated with accession and procedures, but there's never any sense that this is a sort of all or nothing nationalism. I mean, that is a way in which Scottish nationalism has moved towards the end of the 20th century away from a notion of exclusive nation-state nationalism to a partnership, whether it's Scotland in Europe or, or a member of other sort of um, dimensions. So in a way, then, the possible future political event that really would bring some of these questions to a head is a referendum on EU membership, where there could be quite clearly a division between the Scottish approach and indeed a popular vote in Scotland and what might happen in England. And there is a scenario various contingency which would have to come to pass in which England votes to take Scotland out of the European Union. Does that fill you with some foreboding or is that something... Well, I think it's definitely a key consideration. I mean, I found myself in the run-up to the um, referendum, for example, doing an interview with Polish National Radio, where the London correspondent was kind of delighted that he'd got a look in because so much was going on at the time in the sort of Crimea. But the main concern, I mean, the Poles are the largest expat community in Scotland. And he said that the questions he was continually being asked was, well, which side will guarantee us staying in the EU? I mean, much less consideration, say, with Scotland's inexorable destiny or something but actually if we vote no you know could we be signing up to a UK that then takes us out of Europe on the other hand if we vote yes could we be encountering problems that as yet we're on un, we're unclear about about sort of accession as a separate as a separate country so the way that the correspondent was describing it the Polish mindset was entirely focused on Scotland's role within Europe and the best 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Ways of securing that. So I'm going to ask his question again. So is there a chance that by saying no, Scotland signed up to a smaller union that is going to break away from the bigger European Union? And if that happened, do you think that the question of Scotland's relationship with the UK would have to be reopened? I think, I think in a way, Scotland's relationship with the UK is kind of on the table, as long as there's so much um, support as there seems to be for um, Scottish National Party in Scotland. I mean, those questions are going to be on the table. Um, there's too many ifs, really, to kind of be able to see into a glass ball about that relationship with Europe. But definitely, I mean, one of the undeniable truths that came out of the referendum was that for some people, English and Scottish politics perhaps since Thatcher, um, you know, have been going on a different trajectory, whether that's Thatcher, then sort of Blairite, Labour, you know, wasn't necessarily and wasn't was in any way the sort of natural Labour territory um, in Scotland. And there are different visions of, of politics. And actually, there are different nationalist visions sort of looking ahead. I mean, if you're thinking about Europe, Scottish nationalism has always been a very civic nationalism. It's not ever been based on sort of ethnicity or any sort of notions of attachment to Scot- Scotland sort of in terms of race. It's been, you know, if you live in Scotland, you have the right to determine you know, your, your future. And therefore, SNP policy has always been um, to actually increase immigration into Scotland. Um, and as is a very if you're talking about left and right, is, is, is in left-wing territory. Whereas I think, again, instinctive ideas about nationalism and ethnicity uh, you know, tend to often cluster, you know, people's notions of what that means tend to cluster around more sort of right-wing, exclusively ethnic perceptions. And is it your sense as someone who spends time in Scotland, spends time in England, sees it on both sides, that what we've seen recently, and you described it a little bit just there, is we're getting two separate kinds of politics now. So this is meant to be a general election coming up. But the general bit is the bit that is sometimes hard to get a grip on compared to the past, in that we have a separate government in Scotland than we do in Westminster. We have a separate kind of political discourse. It means something different to be in opposition in Scotland than it does south of the border. And that people in England very rarely hear the kinds of arguments that are going on in Scotland and to a certain extent vice versa. Do you think we've actually got two politics going on in a single general election or maybe more? I would say probably maybe more. I mean, I think, again, when I was talking earlier about the ways in which the English maybe have sort of gone, well, what did we do wrong? Why didn't they like us? I mean, you know, what, what was wrong with Westminster? Um, well, I think there's plenty wrong with Westminster. But it's not so much that. It's actually, well, what's what's gone right in Hollywood? You know, what's actually worked and how do people, I mean, people will vote on different levels. But I do think I get the sense, you know, even in those sort of classic taxi conversations or just talking to people that there are there is a different political spectrum in both countries and you know as Scots felt 
you know, notoriously and justifiably a lot of Scots felt disenfranchised during the Thatcher era when Scotland was being ruled by a Conservative government with often very, very few MPs. You know, maybe, maybe some English feel that as well, that if you're sort of faced with maybe a sort of spectrums of people on the right to centre, that the, the, the ground you would just traditionally associate with the left is there in Scotland, but not, but not here. And there is another possibility coming out of this election, and you're a historian, I'm not going to ask you to speculate on outcomes in the next few weeks, but just in broad terms, one way in which the English might feel disenfranchised in this election in a way they never have in the past is that the government in Westminster could be determined by the presence of the SNP and the ways in which the SNP either support a minority government or, though it's harder to imagine, form a coalition with one of the main parties down south. What's your sense of how that might play out in these broader arguments about the future of the union if the English find that the, res- the result of this general election is that the SNP is the linchpin of a future government? Well, again, there are quite a lot of ifs in there. I think it's interesting how notions of coalition have become more mainstream than they were. I mean, uh, you know, the first-past-the-post system doesn't usually result in coalitions, and just as the uh, PR system in Edinburgh wasn't meant to produce um, a single-party government... And you it know, did. Both, and it did, and both sides are now getting used to political novelties. And I think one of the interesting things is how fast politics is changing and how fast people's identities and allegiances can shift. So I think it's really an interesting time. The last election, and presumably the next one, show that there are quite a lot of sort of unknown unknowns. And, and you're completely right, say there were too many ifs in my question. But one of the possibilities here is that I'm one of the people who maybe assumes that nationalism takes a particular form. And so there's an assumption here that there will be resentment on the English side and that there is a kind of little England-ism which is waiting. It's the dog that hasn't barked yet in British politics. But what you suggest is actually we should be more open to the thought that all of these nationalisms are in a way up for grabs at the moment. They're all subject to lots and lots of competing pressures. And we just don't know what an English response to the election, this forthcoming election, will be. There are lots of different shapes it could take. Yes, and smaller parties have traditionally talked about interesting coalition relationships. So, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has talked about Plaid Cymru or the Greens. And you could see that in the debates um, about the televised debates and who should be members of them. And the experience of power sharing in Northern Ireland has suggested that interesting coalitions can emerge. So, you know, if you're being optimistic... You know, this is this is a, tar- a time of opportunity, um, and that I, mean, I think there is growing dissatisfaction or impatience with the idea that these are two sort of rigid, monolithic, two-party systems, um, and that you know, people are being presented with a binary choice. I mean, UKIP in England are showing that that's not necessarily the case. So, um, you know, if that results in a broader spectrum of interest, then that's a good thing. So, one of the ironies of the current campaign is that we have a unionist party. Uh, in its name, and that is the Conservative Unionist Party. But actually, the one remaining party of the union is the Labour Party, in the sense that the Labour Party is the one party that until now has been able to claim representation, if you exclude Northern Ireland, from across the United Kingdom. And there is, again, this is another if, but we have to speculate because that's what this podcast is about. There is a possibility that the Labour Party, if not going to be wiped out in Scotland is going to suffer a historic reverse in that election. Do you think that could change the fundamental dynamics of unionist politics in the United Kingdom if there isn't a party anymore that can claim representation across both England and Scotland? I think it's very important to emphasise that the unionist and the conservative unionist yep. is not the Anglo-Scottish union, it's the Irish union, and that's when the term was, was formed. Um, and those dynamics are interesting um, in terms of the ways in which a lot of people in Northern Ireland and in England 
who are very interested in the union and Scotland maybe felt disenfranchised in the referendum. Now, I tend to agree that if you're going with the civic nationalist route, which to me seems right, you know, those arguments are kind of invalid that it should only be the people who live in the country who vote. But nevertheless, a lot of people did feel passionately about the union, um, whether from a Northern Irish perspective or Welsh or English. In terms of Labour, yes, I mean, the, the challenge for Labour is both to tell the, if it wants to, to tell the unionist story in a positive way to explain why devolution they would perceive as being as being good for Scotland. And that reticence, I think, was frustrating for a lot of people in Scotland that, you know, Project Fear wasn't necessarily the only way to argue the better together case, that there had to be a more positive case. And I think that was really where the Yes campaign was very successful in infusing, you know, that could be called Pollyanna politics, but infusing a message with optimism. And so in a way, Labour, you can have some sympathy, I think, for the Labour leadership in this election, because they are having to fight on more than two fronts, but two key fronts, one of which is to shore themselves up against defections to UKIP, which is telling a UKIP is not really UK independence, it's an English party, telling a story that makes sense in England, but also trying to give an account of why the union itself remains so important. Do you have some sympathy? I think it's very difficult for Labour, because in a way, Scottish Labour is only going to reclaim some of its support by positioning itself against London Labour. I mean, you could see that in the um, in the leadership change that happened post-referendum, where these arguments about being treated as a branch office you know, weren't just you know, bad feeling. They were, you know, they were seen to have some credibility. And also, I mean, one of the themes of the Stuart series was about contingency and how substantial political shifts happen because a, a succession dies out or something. But one of the points about the Stuart series was that often quite seismic political shifts can happen just as a result of historical contingency. So 1701, uh, the last of the Stuarts, heirs, dies, the Duke of Gloucester, um, and the English decide that they will go for the Hanoverian dynasty. Now, Andrew Marr has drawn attention to the... The unexpected deaths of key Labour politicians when they've been at the height of their political powers, depriving that Labour voice um, of a strong unionist, perhaps anti-Blairite or distancing itself message. And he cites Robin Cook and then looking backwards, Donald Dewar and then look even further back, John Smith. So then let's bring it back to the TV series that you're about to make. I think you're about to film it filming it next week, taking your historical account further forward into the 18th century to talk about what happened to the Stuarts in exile. What, again, to go back to where I started, how do you see the account that you're going to give there fitting into some contemporary anxieties and concerns in the run-up to the this very important votes that we're, we're talking about? Well, the series will be screened after the election, so by then we'll know we'll know what the, we'll know what the outcome is. It but, may be screened in the run up to a European referendum, but it could be. Um, and I think the feeling was that whatever the outcome of the referendum, whatever the outcome of the election, that people remain interested in notions of national identity, multiple levels of identity, and the early 18th century is really interesting. I mean, for the first time, there are two clear dynasties. Um, The Jacobites that are seen to embody legitimacy, divine right, monarchy but staunchly Catholic and bringing on France, or the Protestant Hanoverians, perhaps with a less convincing legitimist claim to the throne, but supporting Protestantism, putting a real onus on the United Kingdom, this very new entity to stick together in the 18th century. And the Jacobite threat puts an onus on the Hanoverian state to sharpen ideas of Britishness um, and to promote the Union. And that's the era in which you see the idea of the Scots promoting themselves as North Britons. The English never really sort of take on with the South Britain idea. But I think it's to explore those multiple levels of identity, again, to look at 
you know, contingency in history. I mean, one of the things about in the 17th century and the 18th century is that, you know, that there isn't a common ethnicity in Britain. There isn't common religious traditions. There's a shared parliamentary tradition, but there are very distinct cultures. Often what just holds these countries together is simply the monarchy. And that was, again, actually another theme in the referendum campaign, that neither side were you know, proposing to dispense with a monarchy. This wasn't going to be a Republican independent Scotland. So we are still living, this is a society like the one that you just described. It doesn't have a single ethnicity, has lots of multiple competing identities. In a way, do you think there is a real continuity here from the sort of history that you're telling through to now? Because I began by saying, obviously, this is a very different world. You're describing where politics is a life and death struggle in many respects, and it's really, by our standards, shockingly violent and volatile. And our politics is stable and it's relatively peaceful. But nonetheless, what you've described makes it clear that the continuities run all the way through. Are we, are we closer to the 17th and 18th centuries than we might think? No, I think we are participatory democracies now and um, the levels of involvement are much higher in that, as I go back to where I started. I mean, that's the thing that I look at the referendum last year and I'm quite envious at that grassroots engagement in politics. I mean, that wasn't the case in 1707 and nobody ever pretended it was. Um, on the other hand, one of the parallels that was often cited in the referendum campaign last year was the velvet divorce between the Czech and Slovak governments. But that wasn't a democratic decision either. I mean, that was a negotiation between governments. So I think it's very important that societies um, tell tell their history accurately. I mean, I think it's about um, you know, drawing resonances where appropriate. And I think one actually the very nice things that were said about the series, actually the day it went out um, in Scotland in January, Lord Billamoria um, of Chelsea said in the House of Lords that he liked the series because it tended to shrink the tendency to assume that everything that's happening now has never been thought of before. And I think that was really one of the points of the series was to sort of give some legs, some sort of historical legs to the ideas that people have always thought quite creatively and in sophisticated ways about different constitutional ways of right ruling these islands and the fact that there have always been political and constitutional asymmetries, there have always been multiple identities um, and that you can't really reduce these things into simple binaries. Thanks to Claire Jackson for a historian's perspective on our complicated present. Now back to our panel. Someone who's been making the news in the past few days is former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown, Scotland's most significant export to Westminster over the past generation. Brown played a very important role at the end of the independence referendum campaign, coming out very strongly in favour of the union. Now he's made an argument in an article in The Guardian that Britain risks disaster by leaving the EU. He claims that Britain will not be the Hong Kong of Europe, but would become the North Korea. Brown wants to rescue the idea of Britishness from what he sees as little Englandism. But is anyone going to listen to this argument coming from him? Helen, what do you think? I don't think particularly so on the issue of Britain and the European Union. I think he was listened to in the Scottish referendum for the reason that he is the one authoritative voice of old Scottish Labour that's left that does resonate, or at least did resonate perhaps until the last few months, with many Scottish Labour voters. So is that not true of Alistair Darling? Because the hope of the union campaign was that Darling was the person who still had that authority. It was, but I think that what showed in practice was that Darling's oratory skills are just not in the same level of, as Brown's. And what Brown was able to do was to speak directly to the emotion of long-term Scottish Labour voters. I think when it comes to Britain's relationship with the EU, he simply doesn't have the authority. And then if you look at the arguments that he's making in the Guardian article, it shows that kind of typical Brown 
technique in arguing where he looks like he's establishing some common ground so begins by saying that there are two patriotic futures for Britain's relationship with Europe one inside the EU and one outside the EU and then it goes on he goes on to argue that there is one then true patriotic course to adopt which is exactly what he thinks should happen yeah, it happens to be <laughs> and and that's where he's just not very good at managing to find common ground with people who start in a different political position than he did and that's ultimately in some sense why Blair was a more successful politician than he yeah, so he's he's very very good at rousing people who already agree with him. He's very poor, I think, at extending a political coalition to people who don't. So to pick up on a phrase that we talked about last week, Gordon Brown is a tribal politician. I think that's true. Is that going to work in the arguments that he's making about Europe from Bar? No, it's not going to work. The thing that jumped out at me though was Gordon Brown has been absent for the campaign, and that of course, may be something that's desired because they don't want the contrast to Miliband and how Miliband's oratory skills also aren't on that level as well. Um, It's interesting to see him, though, have sort of a moment of passing out. He had his last speech in the Commons last night. He has this article in The Guardian. The question is, can he be an effective voice for Labour at all in the rest of the campaign? And I don't think he can. Because one of the reasons that he might be absent for this campaign is not simply that he might overshadow Ed Miliband, but also that he reminds voters of the things they did not like about the Brown premiership. That must be true, Chris. Yes, I, I'm sure that's right. Labour is in a position at the moment where it wants to draw a line separating them under Miliband from both of their previous leaders. And people often focus about the way that Miliband distances himself from Blair's new Labour. But Miliband must also be anxious not to be too closely associated with Brown, especially since Brown was his patron. Brown was the man who brought him into elite politics, who got him his seat in Doncaster, uh, for whom he was the special advisor for so long. So I think there are good reasons for um, Mr. Brown to lie low as Clement Hatley once said to Harold Lasky, a period of silence on his part would be most welcome. Although it probably won't be what we're going to get. Finbar, you also said that it's the end of an era, Helen, you indicated this too, that he's the last of the big Scottish beasts, and Claire Jackson talked about this as well, that there was a generation of Scottish politicians, many of whom, as Claire said, suffered untimely deaths, who really dominated British politics and also drove the devolution agenda. But the other thing that's true about that is that Scottish Labour has always sent its talent to Westminster because that's where the action was. And it may be that the rise of the SNP is a function of that. The Scottish Labour Party does not have the local talent because if you are Scottish Labour, you want to be in Westminster to take on the SNP, which keeps all its talent at home. Helen, do you think that's part of the problem for Labour? I think it's absolutely true, but I think it's got the corollary that as far as I can tell, that Scottish Labour doesn't have an activist base either. And that one of the problems during the campaign was having to bring up lots of people from London that make up nearly half of Labour Party uh, membership. And they are not the people who are going to win the argument for you in Scotland. Is that, in one sense, for a long time, what Labour did in terms of exporting its talent to Westminster made sense because Britain was governed pretty fundamentally from Westminster. But once Labour itself decided that that was not the case by devolution, it needed to change tack and it didn't. And it's true that we hear a lot about the fact that political party membership is falling, but there is one party that is the exception to that rule, and that is the SNP that's seen its membership rise significantly since the independence referendum. And members do help you get votes, Finbar. People forget that this is still a ground war, and having members on the ground really helps. Yep, you have to have people knocking on doors, you have to have people stuffing envelopes, you have to have visibility. Um, As Helen said, the Labour Party don't have that activist base in Scotland, they don't have the density of connection back into the constituencies. They have lost the war. And the question is, have they lost the war forever? 
once this election is over, once there is a very significant SNP presence in London, what happens next? Is there going to be another referendum in this parliament? I don't believe so. And then at the next election, can the SNP carry again? Can they carry that number of seats again? Or is it going to be a high tide and the tide then goes out? So, Chris, finally, has Labour lost the war or have they just lost the battle here? I I think they've lost the war in Scotland. And that's part of why I'd like to know more than I do about the Scottish Labour Party in the period of Gordon Brown's domination, that... Labour got the result it wanted in the referendum. Scotland voted no, and by quite a comfortable margin. And yet it turns out that a no result was just as disastrous for them as a yes result might have been. That doesn't happen overnight. The decay of Scottish Labour must have been going on for 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 years, ever since Gordon Brown was left as the last man standing from this extraordinary quartet of Scottish politicians alongside Smith, Dewar and Cook. And historians will need to look very carefully at uh, just how the infrastructure, the the hegemony of Scottish Labour decayed in the run-up to the the referendum, because the referendum itself can't be the whole story. It can't be. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks, as always, to our regular panel, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey and Chris Brooke, to our special guest, Claire Jackson, and to our production team, Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. Join us again next week when I'll be talking to the feminist philosopher and political theorist Ray Langton. I'll be talking to her about hate speech and incitements to violence in the light of the Charlie Hebdo tragedy. What should we tolerate? What should we outlaw? And how can we keep our democracy civil in the age of Twitter? This has been Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.